Welcome to the OTP. Mike Keith and Amy Wells with you with the official Titans podcast. Hello, Mike. Hello, Amy. How are you? Special guest. I love a good special I, guest. To answer your question very well because we have a special guest. Yeah. It's Jeff Leckwald. Yeah, very special. Very guest. special yeah. guest. <laughs> it's like a very yeah. special edition of the Waltons or Little House on yeah. the Prairie. Yeah, the, le- those? yeah the vintage shows. Uh, I vintage guess that's shows. what you're saying. Jeff Leckwald. I guess Jeff Legwald of ESPN is the best way to say it now. No. Fancy. Yeah. But before, back in the day when the organization came to the to Middle Tennessee, he was Jeff Legwald of the Tennessee. And mm-hmm. Did you actually come to cover uh, well, the, the Oilers? I did the two lame duck seasons okay. from Nashville. I covered the – I would go to Houston four days a week. Wow. Really? Yeah. So I'd go to Houston four days a week, 95 and 96. Uh, I did both those seasons for the Tennessean and would go to Houston and then would go to wherever they played for the weekend, go home one day to do laundry and go back. What was that experience like? You're a Chicago guy. You know the NFL. You've covered the league before you get to Nashville. And now you're seeing this very strange situation go on. What was that like? And it predates a lot of, you know, there were no – there was no history for that. You know, there were no reference points. You know, when teams moved before, they just moved, and then they played in the new city. But at the time, Bud Adams said, I'm moving. Houston said, we're not letting you out of the lease. And he said, I'm still moving. So they end up playing these two seasons in the Astrodome with no angry crowds. You know, the few people who did show up were mad, and the players lived in – Houston, they did everything in Houston, but it was, you know, they were building the stadium in Nashville, and it was full speed ahead. So it was a really strange time, and uh, there was no precedent for it. And it was hard, you know, you know, all of us move at some point. We all know what it's like to move sure. or your jobs take you other places. But football players aren't really used to what was going on around them because their families were surrounded by people constantly asking them what's going on with the team what's going on so they their minds were never really on the job it was you know the fact they were eight and eight or you know whatever they it was a miracle actually you know people kept pointing to you know I tell people that all the time people point to Jeff's Fisher's eight and eight seasons and they're like oh he's just eight and eight well it was a miracle they went eight and eight in about three of those seasons so uh hard to coach in that situation, hard to play. I mean, you know, everybody's well compensated. I get it. But it was it was hard for them to do their business. And people in Nashville didn't know how to act. Is it there? Is it? Are they well, we were And we were college, too. Yeah, and, we were very much a college town. And the stadium point. referendum was still an right. uncertainty. So, you know, there was the scenario where voters voted down. And now what happens? Well, so as a writer, as a journalist, how do you cover that? I mean, are you covering it from the angle like this is your new team, here's how they're doing, or are you covering it from this is a crazy story, I just want to tell it? Both. You do a little of both. You try to tell people the personalities of the people. You try to to sort of do the write about the people who were going to be with the team most likely. Bruce Matthews was going to be with the team. Steve McNair was going to be with the team. Eddie George was going to be with the team. 
you know, you, you stuck to those groupings and you played it straight. You, you know, when they talked about the weirdness of the situation, you wrote about the weirdness and then, you know, you had to do the uh, ubiquitous stadium story every day about what was happening in, in Nashville. Cause it, it was, there was a lot of swirl around the funding of the stadium. What's the name of the team going to be? And, you know, originally Bud didn't want to change it. And was well, adamant. He, he said he was going to change it, and then he changed his mind that he was not going to change it. And Commissioner Tagliabue had to step in. Uh, it was, and it say, was a mess. It was a he, mess because yeah. when I joined the team, he had gotten to the point that he did not want to change well, the he, name. He, had, he kept telling people privately he wished he had never said, said that, that publicly. Right. So he was he – was and then at one point – because he had a, a sliver of Cherokee in his background, he had gotten a letter from the Cherokee Nation that he wanted to name it the Cherokees, and it was just, oh, it was just it just kept going and oh. going and going, and uh, you know the the fabled uh, Tennessee Oiler uh, logo unveiling when the banner fell down yeah. and the guy got fired because the banner fell down. Yes, I mean, that it was, wasn't great. It was not spectacular. Duct tape and a banner and a new name. Amy, <laughs> Jeff Legwald had something else interesting going on in the process, though, that I want to get him to talk about, and that is so many of the players and coaches ask him questions <laughs> about what was going yeah. on. The they, informant. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, because you weren't just the guy covering the football team; you were almost like their conduit to what was going what's on. What's the Nashville. mayor saying? I, I can remember right a bunch of times Bud asking me, "What's the mayor think about this?" And I was like, "Shouldn't you call him?" I mean, what am I doing? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just some doofus, you know, writing about football. But, but as uh, a as a journalist, that has to be one of your greatest experiences and one of the most influential things that happened to you that whole well, five-year period. It's unprecedented. Right. It's unprecedented. The team plays two lame duck years. They play a year in a stadium in the state where they're moving, but that's still another jilted town in Memphis. You know, Memphis hated the NFL because they thought they should have had Jacksonville. Right. You know, that was so – You've got another – they played in two jilted cities back-to-back, -back, uh, and it just was an odd, odd experience. And, you know, people think the Raiders are going through a lame duck year this past year. that They don't know what a lame duck year is. Well, compared. I was, I was going to ask you, what advice would you give to teams like that, teams like the Raiders? Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my advice. Get no, the I mean, Mayflower van no, and go look, in the middle of the night. Look <laughs> what it, co it costs – Players and coaches, three years of their careers where they could have succeeded in some way. Because, again, to me, the talent and the coaching, to go 8-8 eight and eight in that situation means you're probably 10-6 and six in, a, in a normal situation. And I think 99 shows what they, that right. group could do in a normal situation. But it wasn't normal for four years. And you figure the average career of a player – some guys never got anything but the weirdness and their career was over. Yeah, three years, so that would make a lot of sense. So once you started covering the team in Nashville, was that a sigh of relief for you as a journalist? <laughs> I lost a lot of hotel points, but other than that. <laughs> no, it was, it was uh, I think once they, they finally, I think the benchmark moment wasn't even the stadium, it was the name. Yeah. I think when he finally had that tent gathering 
with the Titans name and the logo, I think then it became a real thing for all involved, the people buying tickets, the players. Even the players said it was it was kind of a, a relief to finally, because that was kind of the last piece of the puzzle. And he had resisted, Bud had resisted for a little while. So when that finally happened, it was like, okay. You no. had a really friendly relationship with Mr. Adams. I don't know. Friendly sometimes wasn't the, I mean, he'd let you know if you didn't like what you were doing. And, you know, he could be pretty salty. Well, I'm, I'm aware of that. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I do know that. Yeah. But, but, I mean, you, you know, Mike. <laughs> I don't think he ever knew my name was Mike. Uh, may have called you Mark. Or, but, no, he, he, he was, I mean, the guy was an original. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Talk, he was a unique one in a billion. I mean, you know. Probably should be in the Hall of Fame. Why is he not in the Pro it's Football Hall of Fame? Good a question. Good, it's a good question. I mean, he's, he is in the original Foolish Club. You know, the rest of those guys have been recognized. Uh, he did have a – you know, people sort of remember the odd moments, you know, when he did crazy things. But inside the league, very influential, was on the finance committee for a long time. And, and they don't put guys on the finance committee who don't know what they're doing in business because – in the league, at the league level, the finance committee is, is super influential. It's like the broadcast committee. They, they decide where things are going, and he was on that committee for a long time. But it, it was fun to be around him. Now, he, he was under tremendous amount of pressure. I mean, he, he, he bet everything on the move. And, and, he, and they miss they – miss, he got bad advice, half bad advice, half bad decisions – but the lame duck years and the year in Memphis were were not good for business, and he he that really affected him in a lot of ways. At least to my dealings with him, you know, it bothered him that they weren't they were getting seventy. You know, what was the crowd for the Ravens in Memphis? Fourteen thousand. Fourteen thousand and something like that. You know, the the game against the Chargers and Ryan Leaf may have been the ugliest football game ever played in the history of football. Uh, but that—that's what they were dealing with. That was with. the first game at Vanderbilt. Yep. Yeah, and they—I mean, they were—it it affected him. You know, he didn't like that part of it. At least when I talked to him about it. So, I think for them to go on to go to the Super Bowl—I mean, the Super Bowl press conference might be his crowning. With the scarf. Oh, it's the best. I mean, just telling AFL stories and, the, and watching the league people cringe. Watching the <laughs> Titans PR people cringe. It was just Bob Hyde cringe. Talking about how they recruited players. In I mean, the that, AFL. Was, was, that was awesome. his moment. It I was, mean, it was. Oh, his. he was—he couldn't have been happier. It was just like, yeah, okay, it all worked out fine, you know, for him at that point. But so. but that's my point about him, though, is. We miss those guys. Uh, they're, 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 they're not they don't coming exist. back. They yeah. don't. Lamar, guys like him and Lamar. You know, Wellington, Mara a little bit. But Wellington's pretty, you know, buttoned down. Uh, but, yeah, those, he was – he'd say anything oh. at any time, <laughs> at any place, and it didn't matter. And, you know, as, as a guy standing there sort of chronicling the events, you're just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, asked, I did ask him one time. Sometimes – you know, the sort of the, the, the journalistic uh, deal is if you said it and you didn't say it was off the record, it's fair game. But if I've known somebody a long time, occasionally, one usually it's like one, I give them one chip. Do you want to take that? you want to rethink that? One time I do it, usually. I did it to him. He's like, 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Did he ever call you because he wanted you to report something? Uh, never like that. He would call you to say you should, uh, this is what I want to say about that. He never said, he never tried to push you a direction or not. Because he, he didn't like that. He didn't like people pointing him in one direction oh, or no. the other. So he, no. <laughs> he, would, he would not do that. You know, people would try to advise him all the time. Okay, when you get in front of don't don't say this. All bets were off. He'd say whatever he wanted. It's funny because if, in talking to Amy Adams Strunk now, she'll tell stories it's all the time. And see. you think it's crazy. Yeah. They're real. What it's amazing to see Amy running the team now because it's just because way back 25 years ago she was – so young and it's just funny and mr adams would have never seen this no he would i I think if you'd have given him a chance to give me three scenarios of how it looks after you're gone uh, i I don't think he would have picked picked this one but she's doing great by all accounts i think he I, i don't think he would have ever seen her doing this but i think he would enjoy Oh, he'd like it. Watching he'd like her watch do it. watch it. I I think it would blow his mind. He'd like her interacting with the people. With the fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just the players and just the from you know what I've seen and heard. So he'd he'd like that part. Because he he'd like he very much enjoyed uh mingling with the players after games and, and that kind of stuff. You've really had an amazing career being around this and having grown up being most, – Most people get promoted, Mike. I well, still have the same job I, I had 30-some no, years ago. You've moved, you moved to Denver and you covered the Broncos. 15 and, years now, believe and, it or and not. And now you wow. work – it's hard to believe it's been that Isn't long. Isn't that believable? And it means you're old, by the way, but that's okay. You've worked for ESPN and, and you've sort of – you've been part of the, the Hall of Fame voting and part of uh, all of the things with the pro football journalists and everything. I mean – for a guy who grew up in Chicago as an NFL fan. Yeah, my high, uh, I tell people all the time my high school guidance counselor told me I should be a welder. So this, I've, I've beat the odds. I got, <laughs> I got mortician. Uh, that's, I what my, that's what my thing came back. No, no. Mortician? My, sure. guy, my guy told me. That makes me, some sense. Yeah. My guy told me, you know, you might want to think about being a welder. That was his advice. What's, the, what's been the most fun part of this for you? I, I like all of it. I like the people. I like, you know, I just like the people in the game who are in it. Uh, look, and I get the rest of it. I, I understand the injury price players pay sure. to play the game. I understand what I think the league should do for their careers when they're over. I believe health care should be universal for players. If you are a vested player, you should get health care for life. I believe that. They can afford it. It's doable. And it will be a, a great day to me when that happens. But in the game, I just like the people involved and in, uh, who are in it for the, for the right reasons and they do it the right way. I, I, I still enjoy that the most. Moving to Denver, was there an adjustment you had to make covering a new team with a new, completely new story because you were very much invested in the Titans move and – well, their whole story covering the Titans was, you know, I still talk to the people, you know, to this day that I covered every day there. And it was, I think, looking back on it, I think people would say now, look, look, it's an eclectic group they had. You know, McGinnis is on that staff. Greg Williams is on that staff for a long time. You know, uh, Jim Schwartz is still in the league. Jim Washburn. Jim Washburn is 
is among the best to ever do what he did in in it, you know as a as a D-line coach you know he's like Jesus to people. Well, I mean, he is. He, he, I mean, he, 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 he was, and when he agents, came in, he was a controversial choice. Oh, because and turned out because of because yeah. of the background, mm-hmm. and yet there are more people who love Jim Washburn and who and value Jim Washburn. And he is even now in retirement, he is being flown around before the draft each year to work with the pass rushers in those drafts. I mean, he worked with Bradley Chubb last year. Uh, before the draft, I mean, he he is again, you know, and they're all on, you know, Jeff Fisher's. I mean, it's it was quite the group, and uh, I honestly thought the 2000 team was the best team they had, and they, you know, the the Ray Lewis ripped the ball out of Eddie. I mean, it, and the block kicks, you know, that will forever go down. But that that team was the best in football, and to me, the the one shame of that whole time is that that team didn't win it because they were the best team in football and they were built through the draft. I think what, uh, 18 starters were drafted players, right? 17 or 18. Do I have that right? I mean, and I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. That team was built from the ground up during a move of lame duck years. And, and, you know, when they, when they were using the doctor's office as the practice facility, I mean, the, the Floyd Reese would ride the elevator with a kid with the flu going to see the doctor. And, he would. And the locker, wow. the locker room was a conference room that they made into the locker well, room. Well, and you'll remember wow. this, too. So when I first joined the team. And they did walkthroughs in the parking lot. In the parking lot. Because there was no drainage well, on the field. We stood at one of the first practices I ever went to in 98, and it was during the cicada year. Yeah. Ooh. So the cicada, what is they're it, every, every 11, 12, 13 they years? They were everywhere. Oh, no, they're nasty little well, things. Well, the noise. The noise. You couldn't of, hear. You couldn't hear. It was like they didn't have to pipe in crowd noise because right. the cicadas were. It was, it was nuts. It was surreal. And so we're overlooking the mall at Bellevue watching practice with cicada noise, and you can't hear the person next to you. Next to you. Wow. I, I mean, it was just. The bugs. All of and then a bunch of the players, a bunch of the players, sort of had the weird bug. I don't like bugs. They, they hated going out there because they were everywhere. There were they bugs were everywhere. Snakes. Oh. Yeah, it was a strange time. You know, a little known fact about that team is Jeff Fisher bought that team food every day. Mm-hmm. He bought that out of his own pocket because it was such a weird time with the organization, and they had the trailer for the coaches. The coaches' offices were in a trailer. It was just epic. Yeah, I remember wow. thinking. And the pediatrician still used his office. I mean, the pediatrician showed up one day, and the and the Tennessee Oilers were in the building. And he said, well, got yeah. patients to see. <laughs> the whole thing was just baffling I, I, because we were in a trailer. Our staff, we were in a trailer in what is Lot M on the stadium site. Then you had the ticketing people on West End in, yeah. a, in a building. And then the football staff was at the Bellevue. It, at Bellevue, Bellevue. Yeah. and so we you went three different. Can't believe places. I can remember that. Well, you couldn't get everybody together for a meeting. No, they did all because we didn't have space to have everybody together for a meeting. They had a conference call one time between all the football people when they didn't know where training camp was going to be, and they they were given they were sort of listing all the choices for Bud, 
and at one point he couldn't take it anymore, and he just started shouting on the conference call. <laughs> Where are we on the training camp? <laughs> all right, now one thing you love doing, do you still write up all the draft stuff? I do. do you, how many players do you write up? Uh, I usually review if I can because it's just me. You know, usually get between 500 and 600. He's crazy. How do you have time to do that? He doesn't I sleep. I have a very small brain, so it's like a brontosaurus. How much just, do you sleep, really? It's, I sleep enough to get by. He sleeps enough I was on time. to get by. Is it still like four hours a night? It's roughly that. Okay. Some of us need eight to ten. Yeah, well, I don't uh, need beauty rest. It's <laughs> obvious. But uh, it's a, my 33rd combine, Mike. Thirty-three. Thirty-three. I think wow. that's. Who is who is your favorite player in the 2019 draft? I don't have that yet. I don't have my favorite player yet. Okay. Who do you think is the number one player right now? Ooh. Who who coming into the process is the number one player? I'd say it right now. If, if you're just doing it by grades, there's always two things with the draft. The, the, the I always say there's two boards. There's the quarterback board, and there's everybody else. Because the quarterbacks will always be overdrafted. When, like last year, when Darnold and, and Mayfield and Rosen are drafted, they were drafted in their spots, but that's not where they were graded. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but most of the other players were taken where they were graded. So that's the difference. So it will likely be a defensive player for me at the top of the board. You know, I don't know, is it going to be Boza? Is it going to be Quinn and Williams or one of the corners? I don't know that yet. But graded, it will likely be a defensive player. Now, will a defensive player go one? You know, maybe not, you know, after the quarterbacks are done, after pro days are done and all that. So uh, uh, that that's why, to me, it's fun to do a graded board and you let it, go and then people always go crazy where you have the quarterbacks and stuff so it, it's fun when establishing a grading for a player when you're putting together your evaluation what are the top things that you look at uh, you try to take the whole package obviously what they do on the field in games uh, is always the most important thing but you're always taking everything into consideration what's the medical history what's you know if there's an off the field thing you've you've been apprised to or you know somebody lets you know or you find out about there's it's all in the combination because ultimately it's the value of the player is if he can come in and go to work every day and be what you saw on the game video because that's the question it isn't whether or not they can play it's whether or not they can monday through saturday do everything required to be ready to play so that's the difference between guys who make it and guys who don't. And because you would be stunned. I mean, my dad worked for the railroad. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a big library of literature to read every day because he was too busy working, grinding. Mm-hmm. But he used to say all the time, "Talent's the most wasted commodity in the world," and it is. You see many, many talented players who don't survive because they didn't figure out Monday through Saturday. Speaking of talent, why do people love Alabama defensive lineman Quentin Williams? Uh, just well-schooled and a phenomenal athlete for a man that size. So, And he plays like a pro, meaning with his hands. Uh, most defensive linemen in college get by because they've been stronger or faster than the other guy. 
he knows what he's doing with his leverage and angles and how to beat this block and you know he's he is well schooled now the only thing people worry about as Alabama players is they practice hard your four years or three years at Alabama however long you're at Alabama you've practiced like for real they, they almost go full live because they have so much talent on the field and those guys are constantly ramping it up because they're trying to get on the field to play. So you've got five-star on five-star. So their weeks are very different from other places. So the injury rate is, is pretty high. You see, a, a, you know, even, even Williams is going to have surgery after the combine on a finger. Uh, and a lot of Alabama prospects have surgery right after the combine. So that's the only only red flag often for for an Alabama player is the amount of physical um, beating they've taken for however many years they were there. Is Quinn and Williams the highest graded defensive lineman you've seen so far? Uh, I think most teams would say he or Bosa would be the two. Bosa's a classic edge rusher, so he's always going to be a little higher for some people because that's a harder player to find and, and more impactful. I think if you had the core players quarterbacks always going to lead the way but edge rusher left tackle that's that's still the that's still the the royal guard you know as far as prospect do you buy into the theory that this is a great defensive line draft yes especially at edge rusher there are more sort of not just athlete rushers there are more sort of technicians guys who understand what they're doing you're sort of seeing the you know von miller has had the pass rush summit past couple of years for guys in the league but you can see the evolution players are taking more time about handwork and footwork and beating blocks instead of just running around the guy you know I, I, I always wonder what say Javon Curse would have looked like in the current environment because he he had never rushed the passer really when he got to the Titans and and there were times in his career when he was the best pass rusher in in football Broncos questions. The trade for Joe Flacco, were you surprised? I knew he was looking, you know, at a group, and Flacco fits the offense they want to run. I mean, people keep saying, why is he so adamant about that offense? Well, because it put three Super Bowl trophies in the case. They made Peyton Manning run that offense uh, in a lot of ways. So uh, it's it's what Elway believes in. It's what he thinks will work, and Vic Fangio, the new coach, is, believes in it as well as a defensive guy. So uh, that's what they want to do. Now, and it also tells me what he thinks of this quarterback class because I think if he believed there was a slam dunk in that top ten because they have the tenth pick, and it, it tells me if he believes there was a slam dunk in the top ten that he thought he could get, they would have just ridden it out with Case Keenum in the second year of the contract and just left it alone but it, it 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 tells me where they're at on the quarterback class right now what do you think of Joe Flacco in terms of how he will fit that offense specifically he's got to be healthy you know he's had a back and hip things so that's those are red flags sometimes so when it, you know he's 11 years in so you start hearing hip you get a little nervous but they're it's essentially they're only on the hook for this year of the deal. So it's a one-year. It's kind of a one-year 
prove it type thing. They're still they still don't have their long term solution, and uh, they're going to have to at some point. I mean, they they're one of the few team, maybe the only team right now who does not have a drafted player at quarterback in their building that they picked. What do they do with Case Keenum? Uh, they'll shop him. You know, the, I, I would think Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona might want him as a backup for Rosen, and he coached him at Houston. You know, that there is that history. So I think they'll shop him there, shop him Jacksonville. They'll shop him and see if somebody will take the contract. The problem is the, the contract, you, you know, you trade the contract too. Uh, Keenum's guaranteed $7 million whether he's on a roster or not. You know, so that's part of the deal. In terms of the offseason, what are some other moves that you would like to see the Broncos make? Well, they have uh, – They've got offensive line issues. They gotta, they gotta do something. You know, they've been even Peyton's last two seasons, which would have been 2014, 2015. They were jumbling guys around, and you know, Peyton covers a lot of that up. You don't notice it as much. Well, it's been very noticeable the last two years, especially. They've they've essentially ruined three young quarterbacks because they were under siege. So you can't, you know. Quarterbacks are ultimately judged for other people's mistakes a lot of the times, and, and the Broncos had three young or three quarterbacks, Osweiler, Simeon, and, and Paxton Lynch, who were judged by a lot of other people's mistakes. Why is Vic Fangio the right choice for John Elway to uh, run this football team? Isn't that funny? I, in the year, everybody was falling all over themselves to get the young offensive whiz kids I, I keep saying the Broncos went as farther out of the box than everybody did. They hired a 60-year-old, never been a head coach before, defensive, defensive coach. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'm not sure anybody's a bigger outlier in the coaching search than they are. But uh, I would say Vic spoke John's language. Vic talked about we're going to get it right in the room. You know, we're going to get it right on the practice field. And they had, you know, they had let things get away. You know, guys were a few minutes late here, a few minutes late. You know, it's not a big deal in the big picture, but uh, in Elway's world, it means a lot. I mean, you're talking about it. Uh, I think it's the odd situation nobody else really has to face. I mean, the Hall of Fame quarterback as chief football guy is a different deal because if you're in the locker room, what are you going to say? The guys upstairs don't get it? Uh, I think he gets it. You know, he sort of went 90 yards with no timeouts. Yeah, he was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- he has that's, an idea. The, that's they can't sit in the room and say, oh, those guys don't get it. If they understood what it was like here or in the huddle, you know, it, so it's a d- odd dynamic. It takes a strong personality to coach that. That's why, you know, I think John Fox had a hard time occasionally with that dynamic. Gary Kubiak flourished because he had been John Elway's roommate. In during when they played. So Kubiak flourished, and, and Gary's health issues really derailed their plan because their plan was Gary Kubiak's going to coach the Broncos for a long time, and that that's what they hoped for. So when he had to step away after 2016, they, they were really – their plan took a huge hit, and they weren't quite ready for that. So Vic, Vic is kind of a return to the way Gary coached. Gary's very tough on players, even though he's very mild-mannered. Vic's the same way. So they've hired a defensive Kubiak, I guess is the way I'd put it. Interesting. 
the Titans will play Denver this year. Yes. We are, we don't know when, but we are coming to Denver. What type Come on of, out, Mike. We're, we'll be there. <laughs> we'll be there. What type of ball club do you think the Titans – and we don't know when in the season or what they'll no. look like, but just overriding from a Vic Fangio perspective, John Elway, what he wants to do, now having Joe Flacco, what kind of ball club do you expect the 2019 Denver Broncos to be? Uh, I would expect Von Miller to be unleashed. And you look at what Vic and Ed Donatel did with Khalil Mack. I think you're going to see that because I think Vaughn's a better athlete. So I think you're going to see – I think you'll see Super Bowl Vaughn more than we have because sometimes he's he's been hidden or tucked away in their plan. You know, he's he's had moments when he's even dropped into coverage, which I always ask the defensive coaches if I'm given a choice – of rushing Von Miller and dropping him into coverage. I know which one I'm picking, but I think I think they'll be very more intent on what they're doing with Vaughn. So I think defensively, got some issues in the secondary, but I think offensively you're going to see a play-action offense that will take some some risks down the field occasionally, but we'll 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 try to run it and and do the things that they've always done in that offense. You know, dating all the way back to Shanahan. Well, Mike, I don't want any part of Von Miller. I'm not interested in that. Well, there's some who've said when they hired Vic Fangio as head coach, I mean, Von Miller had 14 and a half sacks last year. And, 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 and Bradley Chubb had 12. But there are people who think he could have 25. Again, yeah. not interested in that. For, there are people no, who think Von Miller could have 25 sacks in this defense. He should have had probably 20 last year. Really? I, I think people undervalue the kind of season he had because uh, – Chubb's been a revelation, or a, a great pick, you know, last year at five. You know, and a lot of people, as soon as they were trying to bail out of that pick last year, but when the Browns took the corner, they stayed. They were like, we're taking Chubb. Because they thought the Browns were going to take Chubb at four. Everybody so did. They were shopping. They were shopping the five pick all over. They were, they were bailing out. He was going to go all the way down into the mid, the middle of the round. Because he was like, if I can't get Chubb, after you know, they were interested in Mayfield, Darnold, and Chubb. So Mayfield wow. goes one, Darnold goes three, and they think Chubb's going four. So he's pulling the parachute. They're going to go down to fourteen, fifteen, whatever, and then they just stayed. And Chubb will be very good for a very long time. Can I end it with the scenario question? Yes. There are some people I don't promise to give you an actual real good answer. <laughs> well, there are some people who think that John Elway would like to have Drew Locke. I don't buy that. You do not buy why I do know. you not buy that John Elway would not take Drew Locke to bring him along? Uh I I'm not saying he wouldn't consider taking him, but I don't think I think the fifty six percent is a is a concern. Elway believes even though it, his own career track as well traveled. He was a strong-armed, big quarterback, and but that's back before 60% was considered kind of the minimum. And a 56% passer in college probably translates to 50 or 49-ish in the pros. So that's an issue, and it's an issue Josh Allen faced last year with the Bills. You know, it's it's the same issue and traditionally, I'm not saying never, but traditionally guys have a hard time fixing that. 
You're either accurate or you're not. You either throw in frame or you don't, and it's hard to repair. Uh, but a lot of his is, is from his footwork and how he positions himself when he throws. So uh, th they've looked at him heavily. I would say at this point a lot can change in the next month and a half. But at this point, I, I, don't, I think that's been overblown as a national narrative right now. He still might take them, but to say that right now I think would be false. Just talking about quarterbacks for a second, per your evaluation, who is the top quarterback? Haskins. Oh, okay. There you go. I didn't even have to finish it. Dwayne Haskins, Ohio State. Not close either. Because really? he is a typical He's a pro ac quarterback. accurate 6'3", 230 pounds, stand in the pocket. Watch him play. Watch He's him play. that guy. Watch him play. He's played in big games, big moments. Would you take Kyler Murray? You know – the thing about Kyler Murray is that when the minute you take him, you're the first guy to ever do that. He's never been – there's never been a player like him taking a quarterback, ever. Why would you say there's never been a player like, like Kyler the, Murray ever taking a quarterback? Not, not at this point, not at the top of the draft. There's not been. There's not been a 5'9 quarterback taken in the opening two rounds of the draft. I mean, Drew Brees was six feet. And Drew Brees allegedly, is, and, but I mean Drew He's a second round pick. Drew is bigger. I mean Jack Elway, uh, John's father when he was alive, always said Drew Brees was one of his favorite players on his draft board. But Drew Brees was a people forget he's a very refined passer at Purdue. There's plenty of game film to break down what he was doing at that point. But you're talking about a guy who may measure in at five nine and change. Now, he, he, I've been told he's, he might tip the scales here at 204, but he's going to be a classic. I'm over 200 for the combine, and I'm 188 for my pro day uh, guy. So, but electric with the ball, you know, live arm. He's got all the goodies. You just don't – the minute the GM takes him, you're the first to ever do it, and that's – you know, it's a pretty risk-adverse crowd picking players because, you know, they're betting their mortgage essentially on it, and uh, it's hard to be the first to do anything. But he's there's no question in the athleticism and throwing the ball. So it's just a matter of you building the team, whatever team takes him, building an offense around him so he can function. Jeff Leckwalt, thank you for the time. Always for you, though I would never say that publicly even though I just did. Well, you yeah. kind of just did. Just yeah. between friends. You're Nobody listens. You know, I, I got fooled by the, the closeness we have at the table. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Leckwalds from ESPN, our guest on the OTP. For Amy Wells, I'm Mike Keith. Thanks for joining us once again on the OTP.